Welcome to Time to Pause with your host, Dr. Kimberly Kodaka. This podcast shares inspiring and motivating stories from incredible veterinarians and industry professionals as they successfully multitask common career challenges and discuss topics relevant to the veterinary profession. And now, here's Dr. Kodaka. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Vetopia Inc. Vetopia was created to support veterinarians through mentorship and career coaching. To find out how they can help you create your ideal, happy, sustainable career, go to www.vetopia-inc.com. Hey there, Time to Pause community. Welcome to another episode. Our guest today is Dr. Cherie Wieson. She is a certified hospice and palliative care veterinarian, a writer, and an international speaker. She is silver certified in low stress handling, as well as being QPR suicide prevention certified. She's the owner of Helping Hands Pet Hospice and a happy vet in Largo, Florida. Her articles have been featured on DrAndyWork.com, and when she's not working, she enjoys quilting, cycling, reading, canoeing, and hanging out with her husband, Derek, and the quality control wieners, Frida and Shotzi, who we may hear a little bit from during our talk today. So it is my pleasure to welcome Cherie. Hello, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited about getting to do a podcast with you. Oh, well, this is my pleasure. I'm excited to have you because I think that hospice care is really popular and an important aspect, as well as your supporting veterinary mental health. So we have a lot in common there. Let's cut to the chase and start about how you became a veterinarian and when you knew you wanted to be a veterinarian. Okay, well, my story is super cliche, um, and I think any of the, the veterinarians who were born in the 70s and 80s, um, Dr. Harriet was, of course, a, a big influence on us, but I knew I wanted to work with animals from the time I was a real little kid. I actually wanted to be an ichthyologist because I loved aquariums and fish, and my dad told me I couldn't make any money doing that, and so um, I decided to discard that. I was a very entrepreneurial child, and you know, it's always opening lemonade stands and washing people's cars and things, mm-hmm. trying to, to make 50 cents or whatever. <laughs> so, um, so I gave that up. And in the eighth grade, I read a story by James Harriet called Oscar the Socialite Cat. And something clicked. And I said, this, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I pretty much didn't waver from that from the eighth grade on. It was just everything that I did was to get me into vet school. And it was a pretty straight shot. I didn't really consider doing anything else. My mom said, you know, you need to go and work in some vet clinics because if you don't like this, you know, you don't want to spend that much money and then find out you don't like it, which I think is kind of ironic (laughs) because that's exactly what happened. (laughs) But it ended up being fine. You know, I found some great mentors and spent a lot of time in private practice working as an assistant and as a kennel Mm -hmm. worker and then, you know, went off to vet school and came back and worked in clinics during the summer as well. And I remember when I went to vet school, that first summer I came home, I went to work for my mentor who had been training me and, and had been so great. 
And he gave me a dollar an hour raise. And my mom said, are you going to get $2 an hour when you graduate? That's cool. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah, I didn't really consider that. She's like, you know, you just graduated with a college degree. I said, yeah, but that doesn't mean anything to him. You know, my being a biological sciences major doesn't help me be an assistant in his practice. It was, you know, kind of a, a funny journey. And, you know, we laughed about a lot of things along the way. But fortunately, it was Dr. Harriet. And then, you know, coming to find out later that he suffered from depression, you know, after you read his books and it's this idyllic kind of life. And then, you know, you go and become a vet and you go, where the idyllic life, the, you know, all the fun and all the good stuff. And it turns out that he, he wasn't exactly writing real life either. There was a lot of fiction around that. And I think reading those books now, I feel even more close to him and more admiring of his work because he managed to make veterinary medicine such a beautiful thing in the midst of him not necessarily being happy yeah. in that field. Yes, we all we all love those books and laugh and enjoy reading the stories. I think that we can all relate to the stories, especially now that we're veterinarians. And I think that sometimes though just the fact that our veterinary careers are so busy and so fast paced that Sometimes at dinner or at a party, we might, or with friends, veterinary friends, because, you know, generally people don't always appreciate the gory details, but <laughs> there are actually some, some funny stories that we can relate, which aren't necessarily, you know, about the obnoxious client or whatever, but I think sometimes, you know, the 80-20 rule, you know, I think that there's some really great wonderfully positive, funny, satisfying stories, but there's, there's some heavy, heavy aspects to the career as well. Oh, so, definitely. Um, yeah. And so, great. Well, yes, you follow the typical tradition of shoveling a lot of poop in high school and then going <laughs> to vet <laughs> school and uh, getting very little money during the summers. How was that school, just briefly, but more importantly, tell us a little bit about how you decided to go for your first job, what you were looking for, if it was a conscious decision. Oh, actually, firstly, though, tell us where you, Mississippi State, was that it? I graduated from Mississippi State. I'm a, I'm a bulldog, so go dogs. Um, <laughs> I graduated in the year 2000, which I can't really wrap my brain around that I've been a vet for almost 20 years, because I remember being a young vet and looking at vets who were 10 years out or 20 years out and just, you know, kind of being in awe of that. And I'm not sure when I became one of the old guys, but it <laughs> happened without me really paying attention to it. But vet school was great for me in most ways. I love school. I love academics. I love studying. I don't so much love taking tests and that kind of thing, but I really excel at school. You know, it, it was hard and I, I had difficult times and I stressed myself out like crazy, but I loved school. But the stresses of school were where, you know, physical problems started to come up. You know, I started suffering from gastric reflux in vet school and I started really, I mean, I've, I've been an anxious person since childhood, but, but really, you know, anxiety became a, a big factor in vet school. I was never really worried about failing. It was more an imposter syndrome kind of thing. Like, I don't really deserve to be here. And and somebody's going to find out, you know, somebody's mm -hmm. going to figure this out. I'm just really good at school and taking tests. And that's why I'm here and why I've stayed in. But I'm not good enough to be a veterinarian. I was more worried about failing when I graduated, because I was in this protected environment where everything was okay. And you know, you were you were safe. And I was just worried when I got out in the real world that 
that they were going to figure out that I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and I wish I had known that imposter syndrome was a thing and that pretty much everyone else I knew was suffering from it. Um, right. That would have made me a whole lot less stressed. <laughs> but finding out about it now, I kind of look back and go, oh, yeah, I totally. I mean, I, everything that they say, you know, that you feel like a fraud and you're going to be unmasked. And that was absolutely how I was feeling all through that school. That was really stressful for me. Sure. And, you know, just dealing with the the usual thing. I was away from my family. And I mean, I was used to it by then. I spent seven years at Mississippi State. And so still homesick. And, and I still had issues with roommates and with competition in school and with my landlord and that kind of stuff. So, you know, all the regular stresses in life on top of that school were, were pretty, pretty tough to handle. But I, I really did love it. And I made lifelong friends with several people in my class, even though as a class, we kind of clashed. We were one of those classes that were hard to get along uh, within <laughs> class. And then like us with professors, you know, we, we were one of the troublemaker classes, I think. But I, I really did love it. And, and I have a lot of fond memories of that school. Oh, that's wonderful. And uh, thank you for sharing some of the issues, your thought processes, and some of the obstacles that you encountered in veterinary school. Did that drive, again, how you chose or what you chose to do in your first job after school? Oh, most definitely. So, and I wanted to add to that, you know, I, I had enough stress in vet school that I, I did go to the on-campus counseling services and spend some time like working through that, working through the stresses and things. So I'm, you know, I don't want anybody to misunderstand and think that I just had the best time in vet school and it was so fabulous. It was just a comfort zone for me. And even though it was difficult and challenging, it was a place where I felt completely comfortable because I know how to do school. But, but yes, it, it was a struggle. So what I wanted was a mentor, a really good mentor. And I interviewed at a job where, you know, they were like, yeah, we're not going to pay you much, but we'll give you, we'll give you some good mentorship. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can get paid fairly decently and still have a mentor. I don't, <laughs> I don't think I need to work for, for nothing. I came back to my hometown. So I know a lot of the people here and a lot of the stuff here. And I had done some externships in practices to kind of find out about the local area and, and what the vet practices had to offer. And I interviewed a few places and, you know, I had one, one interview where the guy was like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to put you in a new hospital and you'll have really experienced techs around you, but you'll be on your own and you can call another doctor if you need to. And I was like, nope, <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't care how much money you're offering. That's not worth the stress. So I finally chose a, a local hospital. Didn't have any ties or connections there. I, I don't even remember honestly how I found them. I, I think I put my, my resume up somewhere. Uh, I sent some letters out to, to a few perspectives, but I found this clinic and they were the perfect balance of what I was looking for. They had good, good mentorship, a, a decent salary, and I, I was very happy with what I found there. So I was just hoping I could find a job, but the mentorship part, you know, I was willing to take a cut and pay for mentorship, um, but not, you know, not, not as huge as some places were, were offering. So mm -hmm. So I, I, I found I actually I seriously lucked out with all of my my first uh, clinics that I worked my first two clinics that I worked for because they were absolutely fantastic as far as mentorship and making me feel like I was worthwhile and encouraging me and, and telling me they were happy I was there. That didn't help because they would tell me we are so happy you are here. And then I'd be like, oh, my God, I'm going to get fired. Um, <laughs> like the imposter syndrome was was very, very strong and. Uh, so I, I spent my, my entire first job and, and God bless all the people there for putting up with me. 
Um, but I spent my entire first three years assuming I was going to get fired or uh, end up before the board getting my license taken away. So it was a very stressful um, first first little bit out of the gate. Um, yeah. But but the it wasn't because of the people. It was entirely because of me and lack of lack of confidence and just trying to get used to real life. And so yeah, it was it was a, a rough road. But I just want people to know that you can have an excellent first job and an excellent mentor and still feel tortured and miserable and and have a, a, a rough go. Um, it's just part of the game, unfortunately. I think we all, as new graduates, would like a sense of community and family as you go into that first job, which does include some mentorship. It includes structure, the ability to communicate, and people have some interest. And it, it actually surprises me still to this day that that's a win-win situation for the hospital and the management as well as for the new associate. And yet sometimes you do still see opportunities where, yeah, uh, we'll throw you into this and throw you into that, which in the long term, I, I don't think helps the hospital, doesn't help the client, and certainly can put even more stress on to, to new associates. And so looking for the ideal place is, is definitely important when you're, when you're graduating. Just briefly, the mentorship that you received, what did that look like? Did you have regular meetings with some sort of senior veterinarian over cases? Were they able to come into surgery with you? Would you have changed what it looked like at all? It wasn't very formal. Um, I just happened, like I said, to luck out. Um, I got a boss who was very interested in in young veterinarians and helping them. He was interested in building his practice. I think he was looking for someone to eventually buy into his practice. He had long-term people. I mean, he had people that had been with him 18 years and, and 15 years. And it was just a really good environment. He would come into surgery with me, the two practices that I worked at. And, you know, I had, a, had one where I was doing a surgery and something went wrong and I called him and he drove from the other practice 20 minutes and was on the phone with me the whole time and then got oh, there nice. and, and helped me. Oh yeah. I mean, just like you could not ask for better. And it was a dog, cat and bird practice, which I discovered very quickly that birds were not my thing. You know, I had, I think a week of exposure to a bird in, um, like in all of us. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, Oh God, they're scary. Like it, everything was either put an e-collar on it or give it amoxicillin. And I just, I was like, this does not feel like good medicine. Not that they weren't practicing good medicine, but I felt I, mm -hmm. I wasn't qualified to see birds because I didn't know what I was doing. So luckily, again, I could call him at any time and ask questions. And then his associate, who is still a, a really close friend of mine, kind of took me under his wing and, and we became buddies. And, and he was always there for me, too, if, if I was having an issue. So, yeah, it was it was more just support. And then he would ask me, he would say, I want you to come look at the cytology. And, and I go, well, I, I don't know. He's like, look, you just got out of school. The last time I formally looked at cytology was, you know, 30 years ago. He's like, look at it. Tell me what you think. He's like, I want to know the things that you know, because you, in some ways, you know more than I do, which mm -hmm. felt like a total lie. But he was right. You know, I had just been exposed to the latest and greatest. So not only was I able to ask him, but he was able to ask me. And then, you know, we did have our misunderstandings where he, you know, he's kind of a gruff, Mm -hmm. um, very serious person. And 
you know, I took everything to heart and was super sensitive. And at one point he corrected me on something and he, he left for the day and I ended up crying on the you know, uh-huh. practice manager's shoulder. And so I went home and she called him and yelled at him and he called me and he's like, I'm so sorry that that was not what I was intending. I was not fussing at you. He's like, I just was in a hurry. So it was that kind of mentorship too, mm-hmm. where he wanted to make sure that I was happy and that I understood how he meant things. And if there was a misunderstanding, he was communicative and wanted to clear it up. And my second practice was the same way. It was a feline only practice. And I, you know, I grew up down the street from this lady. I used to climb her trees as a kid, you know, and and we just happened, you know, I did an externship at her practice and I really love feline medicine. So when I moved on to her practice, you know, it was the same thing. I would, I would make a mistake and I go running into her office and freak out and she'd go, Ooh, I hate it when that happens. She's like, well, what can we do to fix it? And, mm-hmm. you know, just always stay calm and, and always was there for me if I needed something. And then, you know, also challenged me and asked me questions. Come look at this x-ray. What do you think? Because mm-hmm. she wanted somebody to bounce ideas off of too. And that helped build my confidence that she yes. wanted my opinion as well. Great. Great. Oh, well, that's great. A theme that comes up a lot is that we only grow in terms of confidence, in terms of experience, and in terms of being able to battle those those thought processes when we lean into the fears of, okay, God, I've got to look at this x-ray and tell my boss what I think, or, or oh my gosh, you know, she's had the same oops situation that I just went in, you know, had happen, and we're supportive. So... I think sometimes only by kind of getting to the other side of that do we grow from it and kind of hopefully remember that, you know, not all changes are totally catastrophic if things don't go your way, which is great. I know you said that you then went to feline only, but during your career, were there any turning point situations or burnout stories where you're like, okay, you know, I kind of need to regroup. This isn't working for me in this fashion. Definitely. Well, with the first job, I was having a really hard time dealing with large dogs. I'm a little afraid of large dogs and we didn't have, you know, fear-free and low-stress handling and all of that. Um, It was more the, you know, the wrestle and rodeo kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And, And I had a big dog that just beat up our entire staff while the owner was doing the, you know, don't hurt him, don't hurt him, you know, um, and, I, you know, we sedated him and he wouldn't stay sedated and he ended up giving all of us scabies and I was just like, you know, I am so over this, like I was sore, I was itchy, I was miserable and I was, you know, I was just super stressed out and I decided, you know what, this isn't what I want to do, I'm missing the cat practice, I happened to see the, the doctor that owned the practice driving by our neighborhood because we lived near each other and I waved at her and she waved at me. And it was like a couple days later, she called me and she said, any chance that you're looking for a job? Because I had gone to her and said I wanted to work with her. And she really thought I needed to do dog and cat practice and general practice before I kind of specialized, Mm -hmm. so to speak. She had uh, an associate who was pregnant and going to be going on maternity leave. I was looking for a change. Everything fell into place. And then I went to work for her. I was her chief of staff for several years. And then I was going to buy the practice. We had worked it out and she was going to move away and and partially retire. And I was going to buy the practice. And it fell through. This was right before the big market crash in 2007, 2008. And we ended up not being able to come to terms. And we're really, really close friends. And we still are to this day. But Mm -hmm. it it was very hard because we were talking to each other through a broker while still working together. So it was super weird. And 
we ended up not being able to do it. And I had started to envision myself owning this practice and all the changes I was going to make to make things less stressful for myself. And again, not because that was a stressful practice, but because I had special needs for not pushing myself too hard. You know, I ended up not buying the practice and then not being able to stay because, you know, the things that I had was determined to change now were so much worse uh, in my mind because I had seen ways I could potentially alleviate them. And now that wasn't going to happen. So I ended up leaving and going to do shelter medicine, uh, which is another of my passions. I spent some time in the shelter and that's really where the huge turning point in my career happened. I got both burnout and compassion fatigue at the same time and became a person I really didn't like. And thankfully a, a person that my my husband put up with, even though he didn't like her very much at the time. Um, and I decided that I needed to get out. And, you know, I stayed way too long. I probably started burning out and having compassion fatigue after the first year. And I stayed another year and a half. And I was just a miserable person by the time I was done. So uh, I decided to open my own practice, but I needed to be my own boss. You know, the, the lack of control over my schedule and the lack of control over what I would and wouldn't do was very stressful to me. And that was a theme all through my practice career. You know, I could handle it when I was at school because I wasn't responsible for the outcome. You know, people could tell me what to do. I still hated having to work, you know, a 36-hour shift without sleep. And, you know, there were things that I disliked, but there was always an end to it. You know, the rotation would be over in six weeks or, you know, this mm-hmm. this professor would be out of my life in, in, in a month, you know. <laughs> So it, it was always an end point. And with practice, it was like, oh, my God, this is just going to go on forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I opened my own business. I gave the shelter my resignation letter and my card <laughs> said, I will come do relief for you, but I don't want to be involved in managing your people. I don't want to be involved in any of the politics. I will come help the animals and go home until you find another vet. So that was kind of my transition. I, I sort of stayed at my job, but I went down to, you know, three days a week with none of the management responsibilities and then slowly started creating this practice and, you know, exploring new things. And someone, you know, called me and said, would you like to do at home um, end of life care? And I thought, well, no, who would want to do that? That sounds horrible. Um, but I needed I needed a job. And, and so I started doing that as an independent contractor and fell in love with it. And that became a huge part of my career. So quite my anxiety, saying yes to things that I'm not really sure that I want to do, but trying them out just to see if they fit is pretty much why I have the career that I have today, yeah. <laughs> because I said yes to things that scared me. And so now I do what I feel like. And if I'm feeling burned out on something, I put it on the back burner and I, I go do something else. And I have a whole lot of different things that I juggle because it gives me the ability to start and stop. Being my own boss mostly fixed the problem. But if I had owned that practice, I, I really am scared to think what would have happened to me if I would have become one of the statistics, if I had purchased that practice and then worked myself to pieces and then had the market crash in the middle of it. I don't know I don't know how I would have gotten through that. So it was just fortuitous that <laughs> that things happened the way they did and I didn't end up purchasing that practice because private practice is not a place that I like to live. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you brought up some excellent points, which I just wanted to touch on. You were conscious of the things and the structure that stressed you and changes that you would want to make in your career that would 
help you thrive. I mean, it sounded like you were discussing scheduling of your work day and, mm-hmm. and what you did, you know, how you balanced different aspects of practice, sheltery type of intensity with maybe hospice with, with other kind of things. I think those are really good points, thinking about how you would structure your career or your business even. Were there any other aspects when you were thinking of buying the practice that you would want to have changed to be able to make it a sustainable situation? Absolutely. The thing is, these are things I wanted to do as a business person now running a practice. I don't know if there were things that I would be able to do, but most of it involved the structure of the workday and not cramming things in until I couldn't practice good medicine. And this practice was not particularly bad about that. But, you know, we had our days where things were just piled on and piled on and piled on. And then I'm forgetting things and not treating my patients the way that I want to. Mm -hmm. And it, it was just so stressful for me to try to juggle all of that and balance all of that and end up not getting a lunch or staying late at work, uh, both of those things also make it very difficult for me to concentrate and, mm-hmm. and to, to be my best. And I just, I, you know, being, being anxious and being a perfectionist, like I live, and to this day I do, you know, live in fear of the Board of Veterinary Medicine, you know, <laughs> that I'm going to make a mistake and it's going to ruin my career and they're going to take my license away. And I think one of the best things I ever did was I had to attend a board meeting to get some CE approved that I was putting on. And I actually sat through a meeting and some of the things that people had done and that they still had their license and the board was still trying to work with them. I was, I thought, okay, well, maybe I don't need to be this bad. Now I know that there are horror stories from all over and every board is different. And of course the members change. And so that's not, you know, I, I'm still very, very careful but it gave me a more reasonable perspective. You know, like if this person can practice medicine this badly and still keep their license and still be given the chance to, to fix it, then I think if I forget to write a respiratory rate, they're probably not going to take my license away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But, you know, it's that need for perfection and that fear of getting in trouble. You know, yeah. I mean, like I'll say that I, I don't want to get in trouble for doing this. And my husband will go, you know, you're 44 years old. Like, who are you going to get in trouble with? He's like, unless you rob a bank. He's like, I'm pretty sure you're not going to get in trouble. But I, you know, I, I live with that because that's the way I've been my whole life. I'm the, I'm the good kid who does things that they're supposed to and gets good grades and does everything right. Um, and, and it's, it's hard. And I think there are, you know, the, the vast majority of, of veterinary, you know, at least veterinarians, maybe even veterinary professionals as a whole are like that. Very perfectionist tendencies. And then we're in this completely imperfect variable where you can't get the right answer all the time kind of right. career. And yeah, medicine is not, is not a per- perfect or predictable. And then on top of that, when you get schedules or business structures, which are chaotic, it just compounds the worries yeah. and, and the situation. Yeah. So absolutely. it was mostly just having control. And, and if the receptionist said, um, we have a non-client who's got a blocked cat and it's 5 p.m., that I would have the ability to say no if I felt mm-hmm. like I needed to say no, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to, you know, this is coming in and you're going to have to deal with it regardless. And again, I, I worked for a fantastic practice. It wasn't the practice's fault. It's just that I, I'm just not built to function in that type of environment. Mm-hmm. And I tried really hard. 
I tried for eight years to fit myself into that environment. And I still try now. I'm in, a, I'm in a, another feline practice, you know, usually one day a week. And, and I still find it super stressful. And it's probably the most laid back practice I've ever been a part of. It's very wellness oriented and family oriented. And we're going to get a lunch and we are not staying late. And it, it could not be better for me. Um, and I, it still stresses me out. And I still, every week, I'm like, why do I keep doing this to myself? <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I feel like I need to. It's just one of those things that it's a steady source of income and it keeps my skills sharp, you know, and it helps a friend with her wellness so mm-hmm. she can have a day off. So, you know, and I like the camaraderie of it because I'm alone a lot of the time. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, aside from the quality control wieners and they sleep most of the day. So, um <laughs> You know, I, it's good to have somebody to bounce ideas off of and to talk through cases with. So, uh, so yeah, it's. I, I think just I was trying to be in control of a situation a little bit more so it wouldn't be so stressful. But I think in the end, keeping the business alive would have dictated that I had to to back off on those those ideals of keeping my schedule, you know, reasonable. <laughs> and I think I, I would have ended up in pretty serious trouble had I purchased that practice. You know, yeah. Somebody's always looking out for me. And, and it seems like just Things when I happen think, for a reason. Yes. And, and people will say that in inappropriate situations, but in, in situations like this with a, a job that is not right for you, I think if you, if then there are guiding forces telling you which way to go. And I, I think, we get in trouble when we resist them. I mean, I look back at, at how many times, you know, the universe <laughs> let me know that this was not a good idea and I kept pushing along anyway. And then when I finally put a stop to it, then things fell into place and, and everything rolled just fine. And so I try to remember that now when I feel like business is slow and I'm all panicky about it. It's like, you've been complaining that you haven't had time to get all your administrative stuff done. Like, shut up and get get your other stuff done. You have time now. This is what you've been asking for. And now it's been delivered to you and you're complaining about it. So I try to go with the flow. And when things are slow, use that time to catch up or to rest. Or, you know, usually I'll feel like I'm coming down with something. I'll, I'll use that time to take a nap, you know, and, mm-hmm, and just mm-hmm. try to help. But I, I struggle with it. You know, people are like, oh, you, you know, you've got it all together. I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't have anything together. I, I teach this stuff because I need to hear it and I need to learn it too. And um, you know, every time I lay around and don't do something or I, I'm kind of lazy at work and I end up watching YouTube videos instead of getting my paperwork done, I think, oh, this, what are you doing? The guilt. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the guilt of just being a normal. I don't know anybody yeah. else that works like that, you know, that, no. that, that feels guilty for taking a nap. It's like, dude, if you can take a nap, take a nap. You know, if you can lay in your pajamas all day long for a day, do it. Like I almost have to tell myself, pretend you're sick. And, yeah. and do what you should do when you're sick and not what I do, which is still try to do everything until I really can't anymore. You know, I, I try to, to say, you know, your body needs a rest. Listen to it. And, and I've at least gotten good at that because my body is very, very grumpy if I if I push too hard. And so I'll start to get a sore throat or I'll, you know, I'll start not sleeping because I'm having heartburn. It will put a stop to whatever stupidity I'm up to at, at that moment um, until I listen and and take a little rest. And usually it's not a big deal. It's like, I'll go to bed at eight o'clock on a Tuesday night and I wake up Wednesday feeling fine. It's just that I need to recharged. Yeah. Yeah. And I've started, you know, very much listening to what my body's telling me. And, and that has helped a lot. If I could just get myself to listen to what my brain's telling me, that would be even better. (laughs) I mean, that's so common. I, you know, I, they talk about the 
personality traits that veterinary schools select for. And I think we're all very driven, I can do it perfectionists. And it took me a long, 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 long time to, to, I always thought that if I were more organized, more focused, more structured, it would happen. And then you hit the end of the rope where, hey, there's only 24 hours to the day <laughs> and you need 30 and B, yep. tolls being taken. And so, yeah, I would emphasize to everybody that get rid of the guilt if, if taking a nap's the way it's going to be, if taking time off is going to be the way to recharge. And I think the other point is sometimes those little things that you do during the week or the month prevent the, oh, I've got to take seven to 10 days off just to yes. be able to deal with myself. And so yes. um, little recharging, re little boosts of resilience can go yes. a long way. We talked about your hobbies and other things during the introduction. Are there any other things that you do to maintain your resilience and your stamina that you want to mention at this point? Absolutely. So my biggest thing that I do, and you know, this is unique to being a, a work from home veterinarian, so to speak, is that I'm leveraging technology because I'm it for my practice now. I've just brought on a release set, which has just saved my bacon, but I, I don't have a receptionist. I don't have a, a, a technician. I, it's just me. I answer my own phones. I do all my own paperwork. And, you know, as business is getting busier, that's getting harder and harder to do. And eventually I'm going to have to hire somebody. But for right now, I leverage technology. So my practice software acts almost as an employee it does mm -hmm. things automatically for me and saves me time. And it was designed specifically for vets like me that, you know, this, this gentleman in Washington state, his wife does what I do. And he was tired of her never being home and having four hours of paperwork every time she came home. And so he, he basically quit his job and designed this software called Rex that basically lets a hospice veterinarian do what they need to do. And it's designed for us rather than trying to adapt regular veterinary software to what we do. So awesome. Rex acts as an employee. Um, my website is through Whisker Cloud, and they are amazing. And again, they make it so that so much of my stuff is automated. Clients are filling out all their paperwork online. Things come to me and, and I can, you know, I can send a quick email and my website gets changed. Um, and then I use Google Voice for my phone and I change my voicemail. So if I don't have any appointments left for the day, I change my voicemail to say that and to mm -hmm. tell people where to go if they need an appointment today or to tell them go fill out paperwork on the website if you need an appointment tomorrow or some other time in the future so that I don't have to answer my phone. Tomorrow I'll be in private practice all day and my release vet needs the day off. So I will have a message on that says I'm in the clinic all day. I'll return calls between 12 and 2 and again after 3 or 4 o'clock and I will have you know limited numbers of appointments available after work. And that saves me all the time of trying to rush around and, and fit things in. And, and it also helps me say no, because I have a really, you know, it's yes. really hard when somebody calls you mm -hmm. crying and their pet is dying and they want you to drive a hundred miles. You know, saying no is hard, but if my voicemail says no for me, it takes that stress out of the equation. I know that I can't do that. So why would I put myself in a position where I might try to rearrange my life in order to do that when I know that that's not a good idea? So it helps me to set some boundaries and to not feel like, um, I have to be at everyone's beck and call because people wait till the last minute and there are times that that's just not going to work. 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. It is kind of, you know, the structure and limits and boundaries and schedule that you can maintain. So that sounds like a wonderful idea. And I hope everybody's taking notes. You can steal your ideas if you don't mind. <laughs> I have whole courses online. If you want to go look at those, my entire speaking career is centered around teaching other people how not to screw up like I've screwed up. <laughs> well, learning from others. That's why I do this podcast. You yes. know, we all have been there. We have so much to share and we don't need to recreate the wheel. Well, wow. I mean, I think this has been such an enrichment for everybody listening on steps they can take to take some control and to create opportunities or see opportunities. Thank you so much. Are there any final pearls that you want to emphasize as we come to a close in our conversation today? Absolutely. So veterinary medicine is what you make it. Don't pigeonhole yourself. Don't decide that you have no options. You know, I have a career where I do house call end of life care. I travel around the world and speak and I work in a private practice one day a week, spend a lot of time on, on the couch at home with my dogs and I make a fine living doing that. So if you have something you like and you want to make changes, do it. Pursue the things that interest you. Say yes when you're afraid of things. And if it doesn't work out, then you know that that doesn't work for you and you can let it go by the wayside. It's not a failure to try something and have it not work out. But I think too many people think that if I'm not in private practice 60 hours a week, I'm not a real vet. And, you know, if you've got that degree and you've got your license, you're a real vet. So just do what makes you happy. We had this life that we live and we went to school because we love animals and science so that we could live the life we want to live. And most of us, at, at least one point, aren't living that life. We're living at work. We totally screw up our home life because we spend way too much time at work or we're, you know, we're so exhausted from work that we have nothing left for our families, which are the most important thing that we have. So I think for people to not be afraid to try something new, if you're unhappy, focus on the happy. If you are happy, you win. I don't care if people think that I'm not a real vet. I mean, I have my moments where it bothers me, but if I get to spend a Wednesday afternoon on my back porch, looking out at the pool while I work, who's the smart one here? (laughs) Yeah. I can't say that being a real vet sounds great if it means that I've got to be inside stressed out and miserable all day long. I I would rather be out thinking about how much I've accomplished because I just decided that I wanted to be happy and that was the most important thing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, And happy means different things to different people, but I can't emphasize enough what you said about try it. Veterinarians have to really get out of the habit of if things don't work or if one changed their mind, it is not a big failure. That is life. That is the way one makes decisions. That's the way one learns. That's the way one creates opportunities. What works for Sharia myself might not work for other people. There may be a completely different version of it, but if you're not feeling happy where you are or completely satisfied try something else (laughs) so thank you so so much i really appreciate the time and all your information if people do want to contact you or check out a website can you share your details with us sure you can track me down at a happyvet.com I'm also at a happy vet on Facebook and Instagram. I had to give up Twitter. Uh, again, I, it was making me unhappy. So I decided that it wasn't worth doing. And then you can contact me at docb at a happy Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to pause with us today. 
Have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Time to Pause. Join us next time as we continue the conversation with industry leader, Dr. Kimberly Kudaka. Make it a great day.